The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? We are going to be talking about the one, the only, Maria Teresa. Oh, I don't know her. Really? Yeah, no. Oh. She is the grandmother of Europe. Oh, the grandmother of Europe. Of all of Europe? All of it. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have made that claim. <laughs> but pretty close. Yeah. From what we understand. Sure. Wide sweeping. Grandmother. Sweeping. Europe. That's it. Okay. Continent. Great. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. The podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, how did Maria Theresa use her influence and power to shape modern Europe? Wow. Bam. This is an incredible woman that we have not heard enough about. Yeah. I mean, you know me. I never know. But um, who is she? Tell me more. Okay. She is the ruler of the Habsburg Dominions from 1740 until 1780. Can we just like pause on that name? The yeah. Habsburg Minions? Yeah. So the Habsburg family is Dominions. Dominions. Oh, sorry. Not, not Minions. <laughs> like, this is a great gang. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Habsburgs are this family that are in lots of royal families across different kingdoms of Europe. And um, she rules outright for 40 years. She's the sovereign of... These are the dominions that are within this empire. Austria, Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, what? What? Transylvania, Mantua, Milan. I mean, like the list goes on. It just, Damn, sh- they girl. rule a lot of Europe, right? Yeah. So she is by marriage, Duchess of Lorraine, Duchess of Tuscany, and a Holy Roman Empress. Jeez. And so all this, keep in mind, is happening, you know, like to parallel U.S. history. This is during like colonial times that she's ruling. And as the American Revolution is Is happening, happening, is towards the end of her reign. So is she running solo? Like she doesn't have a king or a husband at this point? She is... A ruler outright. Ruler outright. Yes. Amazing. Yes. So what's really important about her in world history is her children. And Brooke, just peek over here. Well over 16. She has 16 biological children. Children. Okay. She birthed those? She birthed these humans. Those walked out of a vagina? Yes. Oh, my God. I don't know if they walked. By the 16th, they did. (laughs) (laughs) 
my gosh. But some of the children include people like Marie Antoinette. Um, um, let them eat cake. <laughs> yes. And um, what's important is that these children get married off and some of them go on. Like I mean, King, like <laughs> Leopold II, he's, the, the, he's a Holy Roman Emperor. How do you not rule Europe with a family that big? Like, we're, no, we're just going to take it all. No, I have 16. Yeah. Like, like, I'm, I have two basketball teams. <laughs> yeah, I can play the Olympics alone. <laughs> so she's pretty She's pretty interesting in that she is in this position of power to rule outright a massive empire in the middle of Europe. And then she has so many children that she can marry them off and they can rule various places around I Europe. Mean. So how you know how does she use this power how does she use this influence and how does she shape europe these are kind of the enduring how does she she's pregnant for most of it (laughs) jeez so i'm really excited today on the podcast we have dr barbara stolberg rillinger and she recently wrote a book on this incredible woman and so i'm gonna let her introduce herself This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial History Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial History Project for just $5 a month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you, could produ- you could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. My name is Barbara Stolberg-Rielinger and I'm a historian of the early modern period history of Europe, especially political and cultural and social history. And I'm also the rector of uh, the Berliner Wissenschaftskolleg, which is an institute for advanced study. Um, And what directed my attention to uh, Maria Theresia, the Empress Queen and Empress Maria Theresia, um, was not so much the person herself, but rather the period when she lived. She lived from 1717 to 1780. So I wanted to take her life, her biography, as a key to the whole period. Um, And uh, this is, um, my idea was that she as a person was very ambivalent. She had a very ambivalent relationship 
to her century. And the century itself was also very ambivalent, being on the one hand, the century still the century of Baroque or late Baroque, and on the other hand, the century of enlightenment, of course. And she herself was, um, was on the one hand, a, 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 an, an enemy of enlightenment, yeah. And she, cont- she she detested uh, the enlightened contemporaries, but on the other hand, she didn't uh, know that she herself was an enlightened person, and that her reforms um, later would be called uh, enlightened absolutism. <laughs> I think that's so fascinating. We've noticed that these women have sort of interesting ascents to the throne. And how did Maria Theresa do that? First of all, one must keep in mind that uh, early modern monarchies uh, were, um, uh, you you inherited the rule by birthright. You were not, you didn't uh, come to the throne by election, but by birth. And uh, that means that also women according to the respective rules of uh, succession, could become uh, queens uh, of their own right, so to speak. So she inherited the throne from her father, Charles VI, um, because uh, her father had changed the rules of succession of his his provinces before. And um, so she was the legitimate Queen and Arch uh, Duchess of Austria, Queen of Hungary, Queen of Bohemia, and so on. This was not a state in the modern sense, but it was a bundle of provinces, uh, as usual in the early modern period, not a modern state. So she she inherited all these titles uh, and um, and came to the throne in a legitimate way. But as uh, her contemporaries used to think uh, were convinced that women in general are weaker than men uh, in body, mind, and soul. Um, female uh, rule appeared to them less legitimate. So you always had a problem as a woman on the throne, as a regent or as a, as a queen or whatever. And this was also the case uh, with her all of her enemies around her uh, tried to partition her provinces among them. So uh, they started a war, the War of Austrian Succession, immediately after her uh, accession to the throne, which is well, well, very well known. Her most uh, best known enemy, of course, was Frederick II of Prussia, Frederick the Great. But uh, even more important uh, were um, the, the, uh, the elector of Bavaria and the king of France. So these very powerful enemies um, uh, tried to wage war against her for years. And she had to defend her reign against, against all of these enemies. And you must imagine, I mean, this is what, um, what made her a living legend, because she was a very young and uh, in the eyes of the contemporaries, beautiful uh, young woman, 23, only 23, a mother of, of uh, two, two, uh, uh, two children already. And she ascended to the throne uh, in, a, in a situation of complete mess and even in a catastrophic situation. And she managed to defend her provinces against these uh, extremely powerful enemies over the years. I mean, it took 
uh, eight years. So um, this made her a, a legendary figure already for her contemporaries and, and created her myth. Uh, of course, there is a true core to this myth because it is, it is admirable how she managed to defend as, as a young woman, woman without any experience to, to defend uh, her provinces against so many enemies. Well, I'm very intrigued about this myth. You've mentioned it a couple of times and now I, I like need to know. <laughs> so um, can you talk a little bit about her role during the, the larger century? And mm-hmm. um, she, I mean, you've talked a little bit about how influential she is. So a piece of mm-hmm. that is clearly just securing her, her mm-hmm. territory. Um, mm-hmm. But, and then she also reformed so much despite yes. not really being in an enlightened fan. So um, I'm curious, you know, how, what impact does she have on this period and, and the larger, the larger era? Maybe first of all, I should say that I think that her role in this respect uh, as, a, as a reformer of her states has been overrated over time. So historians of the 19th century used to say that she was the creator of modern, the modern Austrian-Hungarian state, which is much too much to say. I mean, uh, her bundle of territories was reformed, yes. Central power was strengthened under her reign. There was uh, a series of reforms uh, under various advisors. There were a couple of influential advisors to her whose reforms were very different. And I would say that the reforms far did not reach what they really uh, were meant to, but they uh, they just initiated a, a period of reforms, producing ever more bureaucracy, ever more paperwork, ever more, uh, they needed ever more money, of course, and it created ever more problems also, so that the reforms led to new reforms of the reforms and reforms of the reforms of the reforms. So um, it was a, yeah, a never ending cycle of reforms that she initiated. And the success of all these reforms, as I would say, and also other researchers would agree, I think, was much less clear than historians of the 19th century would say. Now, you mentioned before that she had two kids when she ascended the throne. She went on to have like 16 kids. So um, how does she, I, I mean, she must have been pregnant through most all of her, her whole time, right? Yes, like, yes. yes, she was pregnant almost all the time uh, when she was married. So uh, 16 children, you can imagine what that means, I mean, uh, for for your health and so on. And she was she had an extremely strong bodily constitution. I mean, this is really admirable. And she was, I mean, when she was old, she, she was, uh, she was, um, she had, she had, she had several illnesses and so on. And she became very, very, um, um, how do you say this in English? In German, you would say that she, she called herself obese. I mean, she called herself, uh, la grosse Thérèse. I mean, the fat Teresa, <laughs> she called herself with irony. I mean, uh, and she, she suffered from uh, from the fact that she lost her beauty. And 
when she was a young a woman, she was admired for her being so lovely. And so uh, she she suffered from um, from the consequences of these um, these sixteen pregnancies. Now, must, uh, children uh, must have been raised by governesses, right? Yes, of course. I mean, <laughs> yes, of course. And this is also part of her myth, I would say, or of her legendary reputation that historians of the 19th century tended to depict her as a kind of bourgeois housewife yeah, who cared for her children and so on, which is, I mean, the children were extremely important for her because uh, a dynasty needed heirs. And so, Producing as as much uh, kids as possible was, of course, extremely important. Um, but uh, she, of course, did not, for example, she did not breastfeed them. Of course not. But in the 19th century, there was a very nice legend showing her breastfeeding a beggar's baby, a beggar woman's baby, as the icon of the good mother of her lands, which is, of course, completely ridiculous <clears throat> because she didn't even breastfeed her own children because this wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't usual at that time. So um, she didn't uh, raise her children herself. But for her, for her image and for her influence as a ruler uh, and for the, uh, the, the fate of the dynasty of Habsburg, it was, of course, extremely important that she had as many children as possible. And uh, although there were more daughters than sons, and that was an um, unfortunate relationship, you, you had to produce as many sons as possible. In the book, um, I tried not to not only to uh, describe her pregnancies and her uh, way of uh, educating the children, have the children educated and so on, but the way this was usually done in the 19th in the 18th century and to to describe how this was what was the state of uh, the art in um, uh, midwifery what was the state of the art in in uh, yeah in healthcare and so on so tried always tried to embed her personal story in the general structures at the time well, that sounds probably appropriate given, you know, like I think helping modern women understand that women have been doing work outside the home forever and helping them understand how they did it. I think that's that's the, the challenge of women historians. Her her reign, you were you've been talking about her as kind of this ambivalent leader and um one of the questions I had is she, her reign in some of the things I've read was known for its intolerance. Yes. And I'm curious if you think that's a fair assessment um, and, and yes. why. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is absolutely true. And to understand why she was what we would today call intolerant is that, I mean, she was a member of the House of Habsburg and the House of Habsburg was an extremely uh, wealthy and uh, powerful dynasty. They had fought uh, the Ottomans. They had defended uh, Europe against the Muslims, so to speak. And they were very important uh, power of the um, uh, counter-reformation. They had defended uh, uh, the Catholic faith against the Protestant Reformation. So, and they were very successful in that. So, Maria Theresia was convinced that um, her dynasty had a kind of, you could say, trade-off with God. Yeah? Uh, God had 
bestowed the dynasty with with the reign, the, the yeah, the reign over huge parts of Europe, and um, the dynasty in return had the obligation to defend the true Catholic faith against all of his enemies. And this was her religious conviction. And you have to take this really seriously. I mean, she really believed that she was a very pious, very religious person. And so she, she was absolutely convinced that there was a godly mandate um, and she had to fulfill this, and which was a burden for her. I mean, you can imagine as a 23-year-old on the throne of such an important empire, that was a, an extreme burden for her. So uh, she took this godly mandate very seriously. A consequence of this was that she was convinced that she had to fight Protestantism. Uh, so she even tried to find out if there were any Protestants in her provinces anymore, yeah, and try to either um, uh, urge them to, con to, to, to conversion or expel them. Uh, and this was extremely brutal in the end. Many of these, I mean, she, she forced them to confess. First of all, she, she, tried, she, she uh, sent missionaries discover the crypto-Protestants. If there were Protestants, they didn't show up, of course. They hide, <laughs> hid away uh, and tried not to, to be discovered. Uh, but she uh, sent missionaries there in, in, her, in certain parts of the Alps where, there, where she um, was convinced that there were certain Protestant nests, so to speak. And uh, she forced them to, she investigated them and then forced them to convert. And if they weren't uh, willing to convert, or if they converted uh, by kind of lip service and afterwards uh, continued to, to read Lutheran books, for example, or something, they would be um, um, sent to Transylvania uh, on the Danube. So um, by force. And that was a terrible fate because many of uh, the Protestants died on their way uh, the, uh, to, to Transylvania. Uh, they had no, they couldn't make their living there. They had no land there. They had no way to, to subsist there. So uh, you can, there is a lot of research about that. Uh, and uh, the, the Austrian colleagues uh, found out that uh, a very large percentage of these uh, expelled Protestants died, uh, starved uh, or died on their way uh, to Transylvania. So this was extremely brutal. Um, and she didn't want to know what really happened in, in far away in Transylvania. Uh, once her, her son Joseph uh, uh, traveled to Transylvania and came back and reported what he had seen, what happened there, and that this was not a good idea to, to, uh, to send the Protestants there. And, and she didn't want to know that. She, she, yeah, she, she tried to ignore that. Mm. Protestant is the one thing. The other thing, the Jews. Uh, in, in 17, I mean, there were, of course, Jewish communities all over uh, her provinces, especially in Prague, in Prague, in Bohemia. Prague was the most important Jewish community of the time. 
several, several ten thousands of Jews in her uh, at a certain point in the war of uh, Austrian succession. Uh, the, the Jews were. Um, there was a rumor that the Jews had helped uh, the Prussians, and uh, then she decided to expel all of the Jews in, from Bohemia, first from Prague and then from Bohemia. And that was in December 1744, and they had to leave uh, the city and the country immediately, as she uh, decreed. Immediately, that meant, that meant by the 1st of January. And it was very clear that they would, uh, uh, would not um, uh, survive that. Many of them would die on their way uh, out. And uh, they didn't know where to go and so on. And so uh, all of the, her advisors, her advisors from the nobility and so on, strongly advise, uh, advised her not to do that, you know, to, to, take, to take back this decree. But she didn't. And interestingly, uh, the, I mean, this was then postponed several times and so on, but in the end, uh, the Jews had to leave uh, the country. And later, years later, they were allowed to return. They had to pay a lot of money in, uh, to, to be allowed to return. Interestingly, the Jews themselves, they tried everything. They mobilized all their several uh, intermediaries and all of the, all of the European courts, even the Pope intervened in favor of them. And many, many other uh, princes and so on intervened in favor of the Jews because the Jews were so important uh, as, as um, for, for uh, the whole commerce and uh, in the Habsburg lands. But she expelled them anyway. And interestingly, the Jews themselves were absolutely convinced that this was not due to Maria Theresia, this expulsion. But they were convinced that some evil advisors were responsible for this. And this is very interesting that, that uh, and historians call this phenomenon um, naive monarchism, that the subjects, not only the Jews, but in general, the, the common subjects tended to admire and, and um, yeah, to admire their um, ruler and did not want to know that their misery was due to the ruler herself. This is a very significant phenomenon of early modern monarchies in general. That's fascinating. I mean, it speaks to the myth you've been talking about. Yes, uh, and, yes. and the fact that she could expel people and send them essentially to poverty or death and Yet they still were like, it couldn't possibly be her. Oh my lord! Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is interesting. And I, uh, I uh, asked myself, uh, and I tried to to answer this question in the book, uh, how this worked. I mean, how her charismatic reputation subsisted, although uh, she. I mean, there is there was so much evidence that it was actually not true. Yeah? And that, for example, part of her legendary reputation was that she was accessible to anyone, to even to the lowest of her subjects. And that was also absolutely not true. She was, she was much stricter than even her father had been. So uh, she, she, um, uh, she, she uh, decreed that uh, subjects had to, if they wanted to accede to the throne or wanted to have an audience, had to run through a very, very complicated procedure uh, in advance and so on. So 
she was much more strict than her father even had been. And uh, anyway, her reputation was she is she is the mother of her subjects. She is a loving mother. She treats her subjects as a, a, even better than she treats her own kids and so on. And the question is, how, how can you explain this? And I think um, it, it's a very complicated answer I tried to give in the book, but um, part, and I try to quote various sources of, um, of persons who uh, managed to get access to her. Uh, for example, an orphan, uh, a little orphan from Tyrol who um, made his way through her provinces as a kind of court jester. And he managed to, to get there and afterwards described this in his autobiography. And he praised her, of course, as a, as a loving mother because he made it to her. But he was the exception. And um, the same is true for other visitors who made it uh, to her audience and who afterwards described this to the reading public um, because, of course, they, they were so proud of, of this uh, achievement and tried to, to um, tell the world about this achievement. And so there were these reports which, um, which um, uh, fostered her famous reputation as a loving mother of her lands. And of course, uh, those who did not make it uh, to her throne and to the audience, uh, to the, the solemn audience, would not write about it and would not talk about it. Yeah? And um, so this, this famous reputation was spread by several media, by, by written media, by journals, by books, by, of course, pictures, images, beautiful images of her, uh, of hers uh, were spread all over the provinces and so on. So there was a, a whole industry of um of Verherrlichung uh, uh, in German, of, um, yeah, of, of spreading her mythical or legendary image. Would you say like propaganda? Would that be the word? You could call it propaganda, or the propaganda uh, in, the, in this period would uh, refer to religion usually. So, but it was also, of course, a religious cult, you could say, because... Mm -hmm. She was a godly, uh, godly send and mandated ruler. So, um, and this is also a chapter in the book, which is, uh, I think, very important. Uh, rule at the time was based on religion completely, and she was, yeah. And so, so you can call it propaganda. Yes, I've heard her referred to as the grandmother of Europe, and we mentioned that she had all these children. You briefly mentioned one of her children was Marie Antoinette, um, mm -hmm. and. I'm just thinking about how much changes by the time her children are, you know, her children get married off and mm -hmm. they are then in positions of power in places throughout Europe. And mm. I'm just thinking about how much changes by the time her children are, are in power, but also mm. the influence that this dynasty, you know, mm. I, my co-host, I was telling her about the Habsburgs and she had mm. never heard that word before. And I was like, Oh, but they were everywhere. And everybody was related to the Habsburgs. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Uh, so I just think there's this big influence beyond her own yeah. lifetime. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, does that contribute to the myth? 
a bit? Yes, of course. I mean, this is, a, of course, part of a myth. All of her, especially her daughters, were married to yeah, the French king or then the Dauphin, but then later king. And uh, as we all know, ended up uh, in, under the guillotine. Um, but other daughters were became uh, one. One of them became a queen of uh, Naples. One uh, one son became um, a great uh, Dutch of uh, um, a duke of sorry, a great duke of Tuscany, and so on. So Italian uh, Italian uh, provinces were reigned by her uh, children, and so on. But France is, of course, the most important. That was, of course, the most important marriage, uh, and all the more remarkable because the Habsburgs on the one hand and France on the other were enemies uh, for centuries, had been enemies for centuries. And now uh, in the course of the Seven Years' War, they uh, became allies and to um, confirm this alliance, um, uh, Marie Antoinette had to marry uh, the, the French uh, um, heir. I mean, her myth uh, is, of course, Based based on the fact that she was uh, the, the, yeah, grandmother of Europe, the grandmother of this extremely influential um, dynasty. Um, but um, I mean, as you said, her her children experienced this huge transformation, this complete transformation uh, of monarchical Europe and uh, the revolution and so on. And it's also interesting to see how differently the various children uh, behaved in this during this transformation, which they experienced, but uh, Maria Theresa herself uh, didn't, of course. I mean, what she could have or might have experienced is, of course, the American uh, war of independence, but uh, she didn't even notice take notice that. I mean, she once um, she said um, that during the Seven Years' War, which was kind of World War already, she um, she noted that uh, America is as far away as the moon. Mm. So America was absolutely beyond her um, beyond her uh, consciousness, so to speak. She she wasn't aware of these. Transformations, these huge uh, influential transformations uh, on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. Wow, that's so. I mean, that's so. That makes sense. I mean, we, we and when I teach about you know people getting on those ships and going over to America, that it would be like going to space. Like it was dangerous, and it was you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. that makes sense. That's an interesting comparison. You know, it's, it's funny that I make that comparison too. Mm. <laughs> She's controversial. She's important. Yeah. Uh, she's intolerant. She's ambivalent. Mm -hmm. Why do you admire her? I mean, you spent a lot of time mm -hmm. researching her. Why? Why is she something, someone important to you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I admire her in the in the strict sense of the word because uh, my my methodological principle in general is not to identify with my heroine where with my with the figure and to to keep her at arm's length so to speak yeah to to uh, not to try to to write kind of introspective biography because i this is a very very strange and uh, um, unfamiliar period 
if you take it seriously. It is very, very far away. It is before the great transformations around 1800. So um, it is for me, all the persons of that time are too strange uh, to, to really be admired in, in, in a way. I, I just I don't hate them either. I mean, it's, it's, I try to have a distanced view on them. On them. But on the other hand, of course, I, um, I must say that she was a remarkable ruler in many respects and that uh, the contemporaries were right in a way to find her remarkable already. Um, for example, what makes her remarkable is her extremely extraordinary sense of responsibility for her lands, her remarkable sense of duty her her religious piety her um i mean the contemporaries and especially historians in the 19th century um were impressed by her because they said she was the one great exception from the rule the rule being women are weak <laughs> yeah. women are not uh, meant to rule so she was the one exception that proved the rule yeah <laughs> the exception that proved the rule. So, for example, Hugo von Hofmannsthal, the great Austrian writer, describes her as the great exception to the rule. And this is interesting because actually women did act as rulers in, in the early modern period very often, in, not only in England, uh, but also in other countries. So she, she definitely was not that great exception. Afterwards, after the French Revolution, when in, in republics, uh, when the monarchy was step, uh, abolished and uh, um, um, rule was uh, transferred by elections, that was the moment when women had no say anymore. But before that, in the early modern period, women were meant to, or in, in many cases at least. So um, the, the French Revolution was not that progress in uh, gender respects uh, regarding gender relations. That was not at all uh, the progress, yeah? the progressive uh, uh, change, uh, by the way. Yeah? I had never so, thought of it like that, but that's so true because when you take away the monarchy where women have ways yes. that they can get to the throne and you mm -hmm. turn it over to an electorate, a male yeah. electorate. Yes. Wow. yes, and they would not be elected. Uh, this is also true, for example, in her case, she inherited uh, the, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the rule over Bohemia, Hungary, Austria, and so on, but she could not become emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which is a very monstrous and unknown <laughs> political uh, entity. Uh, but for that, she had her husband. I mean, her husband was uh, elected emperor of the Holy Roman Empire because the, the Holy Roman Empire was, uh, uh, the emperor was elected, would be elected and not um, get the throne by, by inheritance. So she wasn't able to become emperor. She was empress because she was uh, the emperor's spouse. Hmm. Uh, and th this is why she wanted to become crowned empress, because this would be a secondary status. She was crowned in huge ritual acts, um, king of Bohemia and king of Hungary, not queen, king. Hmm. So this was a male role. Uh, 
and and uh, it's very significant that yeah she could not become emperor because that was uh, by election and she could not be elected as a woman. Hmm. So this is yeah to, to just to show the the uh, connection between inheritance and female rule versus election and exclusively male rule. Yeah, I'm you're blowing my mind. So this is great. Um, I'm I'm curious. Talking about gender, do you feel like the monarchy did anything to help women at the bottom? Like what, you know, we talked earlier about her intolerance of Jews and Protestants, like what, were there any initiatives to support, you know, other, other masses and I guess specifically women, but you know, were there any things that she did to support people Mm. that religiously were in line actually to be serious she didn't yeah. <laughs> you can see this uh, in the relation the, the correspondences with her daughters uh, where she on the one hand wanted them to influence their husbands at the various courts in Versailles in, in Paris in, in, in Naples and so on but on the other hand she was not at all a feminist uh, avant la lettre she wasn't at all uh, she told them again and again, especially Marie Antoinette, they should subordinate it, uh, themselves to their to their husbands. They should not show that they were um, uh, uh, more smart or yeah, more bright than their husbands. They should never show this. Yeah? They should always behave uh, in a subordinate uh, way. And so this was, of course, the opposite to a feminist <laughs> attitude. She herself, as she was the heir to the throne, she was uh, uh, the ruler. She, of course, had uh, had no subordinate position, but her daughters had as, as uh, spouses of, of kings. But uh, they had to behave uh, as uh, subordinates. Hmm. So she wasn't a feminist at all. That's fascinating. Um, I, and this is also true, of course, for the for the for the common subjects. Of course, it seems to be a common pattern in women's history, where women who are really like strong leaders and really powerful um, tell other women not to do what they're doing. <laughs> it's like, this is changing. I mean, this is this has changed. I would say now. Yeah. Yeah. But you always find these cases, yes. Yeah, I hope it's changing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just to help me wrap my mind around Austrian history a little bit, it's because it's foreign. Uh, Austrian history, in my mind, comes back in at World War I um, with, you know, the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Are mm-hmm. those people descendants of her? Like, are they Habsburgs? Or yes, they- of course. Oh. Of course. Yes, of course, they are. Yeah, uh, the emperor... Um, uh, uh, Franz Josef, <laughs> Francis Joseph, of course, and uh, all of the yeah, the whole Habsburg dynasty, of course. Uh, and the interesting thing is that as the Habsburg dynasty l- lost one province after the other during the 19th century, uh, not uh, not only uh, with the yeah, with the, with the First World War, but before, of course, yeah, with their wars with Germany, England, right? They lost all, uh, partly, uh, one after the other, lost all their provinces or their influence and so on. And interestingly, uh, in parallel to this 
vanishing power in Europe, the legend of Maria Theresia was increased. So I think there is a correspondence. Yeah? The more they left, they lost influence the, and they lost their uh, former power, the more they needed th this legendary figure um, as a figure of monumental history in the sense of Friedrich Nietzsche, who said um, uh, history, monumental history is a way to overcome uh, despair and to, to uh, strengthen the belief that former greatness can be restored in the future. So they needed this monumental figure of Maria Theresia in a century where uh, the power of the Habsburg dynasty declined. Wow. I mean, that just speaks to, yeah, I, I have always wanted to go to Austria and Germany. This, and now I like need to get there. <laughs> yes, you should. Yeah. 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 So and I mean, it's important to see that what what is Austria today was then only one part of this huge bundle of provinces. Huh? I mean, that was her oldest and most important, the most important title. But she had the title of Archduchess of Austria, but uh, this was just a small, small part of the huge uh, bundle of territories, uh, which, of course. Belgium, Italy, and so on. So Austria today is a very tiny, I must say, as a German citizen, it is the case that Austria is a very tiny, tiny country now. And uh, for them, of course, still today, Maria Theresia is a very important figure of national greatness, of course. Yeah. So your book is coming out Yes, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> when, where, where can folks find your book if they're interested in finding it? Uh, it Princeton University Press. Okay. Yeah, it will be, it will be uh, published by Princeton University Press in uh, by January. I don't know exactly when. It took a long, long time to translate it. And as far as I can say, the translator did a great job. He's really he's marvelous. He even tried to, there are, there are certain poems uh, which I quote in the text, and he even uh, tried to mimic uh, the style of the poems with the rhymes and so on. So he, oh. he, he did a wonderful job. And it took a long time to, to uh, proofread and everything. So finally, I very much hope that by January it will uh, come out. Oh my. Princeton University Press. Uh, more than a thousand pages, I must say, as a warning. As a warning. <laughs> well, a, a 45 minute episode is not nearly enough to cover the legacy of this woman. So they'll need to read the whole book. <laughs> you can also read several chapters and drop the others. I mean, you, you can drop the war chapters and just read the sex chapters, for example. <laughs> so there are more or less interesting parts. Oh, well, I'm sure it's all interesting. You're too too humble. <laughs> well, thank you so much for meeting with me, Barbara. I really appreciate your time. And I am so grateful for you re-educating me and helping me <laughs> become a better historian myself. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.